Hey everyone, and welcome to Theana Money, where we seek to help the good man leave an inheritance to his children's children. This is Jeremy Collins, the host of Theana Money. Thanks for joining me again this week, everyone, and if this is your first time listening, then I especially want to thank you and hope that you will decide to keep listening into the future. This week, we are looking at an article from the Gospel Coalition that gets into money and welfare and economics. And if we have enough time, we will look at a second one as well. Some people might get the feeling that I'm just always trashing the Gospel Coalition, but I don't want that to be the case. I used to love TGC and used to be a fan of it. In fact, I've been to a TGC concert. Not the conference, just the concert with my boys Shylin and Beautiful Eulogy. I would love it if TGC repented of different ways they have been trying to bring in less than conservative ideas into the church and started doing things like actually fighting critical theory. Not just critical race theory, like all forms of critical theory, because there's quite a few of them. Not soft-pedaling it than having an occasional Neo Shenvi article to give themselves plausible deniability when it comes to critical theory. But anyways, let's dive into the article. And before we do that, real quickly, I just want to ask that if you like the podcast, you rate and review and subscribe so that you can keep listening to more episodes in the future. And follow Theana Money on the social media sites. That really helps get the message of God's law and what it teaches us about money out there. So, back to TGC's article. Today we are looking at their article titled, Can You Help Me Understand the Welfare System? by Greg Phelan, which they released back in May of this year, which is 2021, if you are listening to this in the future. I didn't originally intend to post this episode the week after the one with Matt Belleville, but the timing couldn't be better because they really complement one another. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode titled 27, Taxes and Christian Welfare, you should do so after you finish this one to see the differences between how TGC presents helping the poor and how Matt presents helping the poor. The link to the article is in the description of the video if you want to pause and go read it before you listen to the rest of the episode. That way you can get a feel for the article and an understanding of it and a better idea of whether or not you think what I say in response is a valid criticism or a misrepresentation. So I hope you agree with me and what I have to say, but I want you to know what they said and what I'm saying before you just agree with one of us or the other. So let's dive into the article. My biggest issue with it is an underlying assumption that is stated near the beginning of the article. Phelan writes, The real question is not whether the church should replace the welfare system. I really don't see that happening, given the scope of the need 
and the level of coordination and organization involved, but whether the welfare system interferes with the ability of the church to do its job. I don't think it generally does. So welfare is just assumed. It's like the author is just thinking, welfare is here and isn't leaving anytime soon, so let's see what we can do to promote a biblical approach to things that work around welfare. I mean, that is nearly what he said in that quote I just read. I get that the question he was responding to, which is the title of the article, that once again is, can you help me understand the welfare system? So I guess the question kind of assumed the welfare system will stay, so the answer does as well. However, just because the question assumes that, the answer doesn't have to. It could point out that as an issue with the question and point to better solutions that would replace the welfare system, not supplement it. And in fact, the full question doesn't assume it. The full question was way too long for an article title, so they made it the first paragraph of the article. It is, can you help me understand the welfare system? I want to love the poor by providing help when it's needed, along with incentives for them to pursue the dignity of work. I don't think our welfare system does a good job of this. Would it be better, or even possible, to scrap it and let the church take over helping the poor? How can I be wise about this? What should we advocate? And I just want to say that's a great question. Whoever asked this question to TGC, that's a good question. You're probably never going to listen to this podcast episode, but I hope you do. And I hope you like what I have to say and respect that I am respecting your question. So the question specifically asked if it could be done away with and replaced by the church. That is the welfare system. If it could be done away with and replaced by the church. But the answer to the question just seems to assume that's impossible. And it says, I really don't see that happening given the scope of the need and the level of coordination and organization involved. Then he goes on to say that this doesn't interfere with the church doing its job. And right there we see an issue with this article which is an issue with a lot of things put out by big EVA organizations. That is, the words they say are for the most part technically true. There is a lot the church can do to help the poor and downtrodden that doesn't interfere one bit with what the state does to help the poor. If that is your goal, then this is a pretty good article. So it's technically accurate. But is that a biblical goal? Is that a goal that reflects a fully-orbed biblical worldview? I don't think so. That is the issue with so much stuff coming out of Big Eva these days. Is that statements they make are technically true if taken in a vacuum, but things have context, not vacuums. We as Christians with a biblical view of economics, especially those of us who fall into the theonomist or libertarian camps, and though we might disagree on things, here is a point where we agree. We don't want to let the state do their things to help the poor, and we do our own thing to help the poor, like two complementary and equal partners trying to do God's work together. To use the words from the question the article was written to address, we want to scrap welfare and let the church take over helping the poor. The questioner asked if this was better or even possible. The answer to the first is a yes with no hesitation. It is better. 
If you have listened to past episodes of the podcast, you can probably think of a few reasons already, and we will come back to that in a bit. The second question is the one that might make people pause. Is it possible? I think that is much of the hang-up that Phelan has. He sees this as impossible in the short term and perhaps in the long term as well. And sure, right now it looks more or less impossible. So does the abolition of abortion. That doesn't stop immediatists like myself from fighting it. Most of the listeners probably know that I hold to postmillennialism. We assume that Jesus won't return for hundreds or thousands of years, and so the threats to the church and enemies we see today will be defeated in time. Whether months, years, decades, or centuries is for God to decide. So if I were to write this article, it would be about what the church should be doing that would replace welfare, not take it as a sure thing that isn't going away and more or less try to supplement it. And sure, replacing welfare in the short term looks nearly impossible, so my article would have some more long-term plans. And this podcast episode seems to be turning into a bit of what the article would look like, so keep listening. So back to my question about if the churches supplementing the state and welfare is a biblical goal and one that reflects a fully orbed Christian worldview. I think the answer to those questions is no. If you remember past episodes when we have gone into the spheres of sovereignty, then you probably know where I'm going with this. If not, then I will give a quick summary of the spheres of sovereignty and then talk about how that applies here. God has created three forms of government, the family, the church, and the state. And depending on who you ask, there are four because self-government, or self-discipline, is the first sphere of sovereignty. The family has the father as the head. The church has the elders of each local congregation as the head. And the state has the various levels of civil magistrates in each nation as the head. The church is the minister of mercy and the state is the minister of the sword. Per Romans 13. Care for the poor and downtrodden is to be done by the family and the church. This looks like families directly giving to those in need and churches giving to those in need from the money given to the church by families. A practical example of this is when the deacons helped the widows in the early chapters of Acts by distributing food to them, and that is something that Matt and I talked about in last week's episode. The state is not the minister of mercy. It is not to help the poor by giving money or other forms of goods or services to them. It helps the poor and downtrodden by bringing wrath on the wrongdoer if someone has committed a crime against them. But that is the extent of it. So that is why I say that this goes against a fully orbed biblical worldview and the church should try to replace the state in its care for the poor and outcast, for the widows and orphans to reference James 127. It isn't the state's domain, it is our domain. Now, returning back to the article, one of Phelan's points was to refer to a chart on the 2007 stats for money spent and recipients who received said money for nine government programs. The sum total was over $500 billion, or in other words, over half a trillion dollars, with Medicaid making up over half of the total. 
Now, prior to all the spending bills and stimulus packages put out by Presidents Trump and Biden and their administrations in the last two years, that would seem like a lot of money. But these days, it has perhaps lost a bit of the sting that it should still have. That is more than the net worth of King David, who, if you remember from episode 21 on if you can be rich and a Christian, would be richer than the richest man alive today. In that episode, we saw that the amount of wealth David dedicated to the temple is, in today's terms, more than the net worth of the richest man alive. Assuming that David dedicated half of his net worth to the temple, and we don't know for sure since we aren't told how much money he had left over, we're just giving a flat-out random guess here, his over $400 billion net worth was still less than the total of these nine government programs to help the poor in 2007 alone, and it has no doubt gone up since then. One of Phelan's points for why Christians can't replace the welfare system is because that unfathomably high total is outside the scope of what Christians can provide. The need and the organization to meet that immense need are just too high. To that, I have several questions. One is how much of these hundreds of billions of dollars went to pay the government officials working in these programs, the probably well-paid government officials, some of whom might have taken more than they were due in wages, either in under-the-table maneuvers or in large bonuses. I doubt we will ever actually know that number. So the dollar amount needing to be met becomes much lower when we don't have so many well-paid government officials in charge of it. It also becomes lower when we start looking at the worthy poor, as Matt described in last week's episode. Those who are poor because they have been wronged or because of God's good providence and are working to, if at all possible, no longer be poor. This is excluding the unworthy poor, those who are content being poor and receiving handouts from others and don't want to work to get out of their poverty. So the second question is, if the poor receiving this money are honorable or dishonorable poor. But how could the government know the difference between the worthy and unworthy poor, you ask? They can't. That is the job of the families and churches who are distributing those funds to people in their local community. You know the needs of your community and the difference between those who are genuinely destitute and doing their best versus those who are poor because they just don't want to work hard. People in D.C. don't know that. And yes, this is applying the free market to helping the poor in a sense. Because the free market says that individuals know their situation best so they should set prices, not the government who is far away from the local situation. But that isn't starting with the free market and putting it onto scripture. It is looking at what scripture says and then saying, wow, that looks a lot like the free market. So far, we have seen that the dollar amounts needed to help the poor, based on the chart that Phelan provided, can be reduced because families and churches, especially the deacons within those churches, are doing the work. Not well-paid government officials who may or may not be taking extra under the table. Then we saw the difference between the worthy and unworthy poor will reduce the number further. Now let's look at the other side, how to raise the money as Christians. This is another time I want to look back at what Matt said last week. To be fully honest, I'm not completely sure on what he said about the tithes yet. 
I think he makes a lot of good arguments and it sounds biblical and convincing, but I tend to be really slow when it comes to big theological points. You can ask my friends when I became post-mill. I was like the first one to think post-mill might be accurate, but one of the last ones to actually adopt it just because I always take so long changing my mind on theology, which I guess isn't a bad thing. So I want to be really slow with this point here that Matt said. I'm like, every day I seem to be incrementally more agreeing with it, but I'm trying to slow myself down and think I need to hear all the arguments first. I know Gary North disagrees with it, so I need to see where and why Gary North disagrees with this, which is Rush Dooney's point. I can't just agree with Rush Dooney just because he said it, knowing Gary North and others have disagreed. I want to look at all the points and come to a conclusion. But that being said, I think there is at least a good possibility this is the correct view. And even if it's not, I think it's still a viable option for a theonomic nation to adopt because I think that once there are multiple theonomic nations in the world, there will be differences in how case laws are applied to each nation based upon similar but different interpretations of various passages. All that to say, we are going to continue to compare what Matt said last week to what Phelan is saying in this article because Matt made good points that address what Phelan said. So how can Christians raise these vast amounts of money necessary for helping the poor? Well, every three years, all believers give 10% of their income that year to help the poor. We would probably come pretty close. And you may respond that this is not happening right now, and I agree. But I said that this is likely impossible in the short term, so we need to set our long-term goals by what most accords with scripture and then start working towards those goals, even if those long-term goals are set for decades in the future. And this poor tithe every three years isn't just giving handouts to the poor to get them through that year and then letting them try to figure it out on their own for the next two years. This is the case for several reasons. First, some people think it is okay to break the 10% every three years up into 3.33% every year. The point of this isn't to debate that point, but to say that people like this will help the poor in the in-between years. Second, Christians can give more than 10%. We should think of the tithes as minimums, not amounts set in stone. You can always give more than the 10% or give in the other two years if needs arise. Finally, part of being a worthy poor person and not an unworthy one is to use the charity well in the third year. If that poor man lives like a king for that year and then is poor again for the next two years, much like the prodigal son, then he will be deemed an unworthy poor person and may not receive funds the next time unless he displays genuine repentance. On the other side, the poor person may receive the funds given to him take enough for him to have food and shelter for the next couple months, then invest the rest into education or equipment to allow him to make a larger income. Then, should God bless his efforts, he will soon no longer be poor. That last one really helps because progressively there should be less and less poor. The man with few skills uses his poor tithe to get an education and now gets a higher income. The man who made a good living with his business, but then goes bankrupt when expensive but necessary equipment breaks down, he fixes it with his poor tithe and is back to making a good living pretty soon. The older couple that can't do much to increase their income invest their poor tithe to make it stretch three years. You get the picture, the list can go on and on. 
Christians can do this. Matt said last week that at one point during the Maccabean period, the poor actually ceased in Israel because everyone was fulfilling God's command concerning the poor tithe. Now, the issue today is that these government programs aren't going away anytime soon. So, Phelan has a point that in many ways, the church will be supplemental to the government for some time. But take a look at those programs. Most of them can't last long term. Social security is a pyramid scheme that's probably going to blow up in the next decade or two, especially with declining birth rates. Just look at Japan for a bit of a prediction on our future. Taxes aren't enough to cover several of the other programs, and once again, declining birth rates aren't helping because there are not as many new taxpayers, and the government can only print money to cover the cost for so long before the entire system collapses. And if we try to cover the taxes necessary by adding new taxpayers via immigration, well, there are only so many people in the world who want to move to America, and their birth rates tend to quickly mimic the low American ones once they get here. What will we do when that time of collapse comes and Christians saw themselves as supplemental to the government, so they are unable to provide enough support to cover the entire burdens of the poor? That is when those of us who practice biblical principles to care for the poor rise to the occasion because we've been doing it all along. When the poor don't know what to do to make ends meet because they have been dependent on the state, the poor Christians connected to us will have nothing to worry about. Then everyone will be coming to us looking for the solution. Disaster will turn into redemption, which seems to be a recurring theme in the gospel and our sanctification and church history, etc. I think God's a fan of these disaster and redemption stories. And sure, we might replace the state's welfare program by some other means, but right now I think it collapsing on itself and Christians being the primary ones rising to the charge to help the poor is the most likely situation. So it is possible, just not immediately so. And that is what Phelan should have set his eyes on in the article, not how the church is supplemental to the welfare system. Alright, so this episode is going long and I've barely even addressed what I wanted to respond to with this article. This more high-level, macro-level response was supposed to just be the intro, and then we would dive into the article, walking through it, and responding to it point by point. But once I got into that intro, I realized the intro needed to be the entire episode, so I hope it was beneficial. If you all want me to take another look at this article in the future and respond in finer detail to its points, then I'll do that. Email me at theonamoney at gmail.com, comment on social media, PM on social media, whatever is most convenient for you. But I think that this forest level instead of individual tree level response was enough and any more would be belaboring the article. And I didn't even respond to the other TGC article I said I might address if I have enough time. Well, maybe that article will get its own entire episode at some point in the future. It is one of their articles about Bitcoin, so let me know in the comments of this podcast episode or on social media or what have you. Like I just said, email me, PM me, whatever you want. And let me know that if an episode about Bitcoin that disagrees with what the Gospel Coalition says seems pretty interesting to you and I'll make an episode about it. So in closing, I just want to add a conclusion like I did with the episode responding to Tim Keller, which is titled 24, Missions and Racism, if you want to check it out.
this probably will not be the last time I do an episode responding to TGC. Like I said, I might do one on Bitcoin at some point. So more will come, but I don't want these episodes to become a reason to hate the Gospel Coalition, just to hate them. Hate the evil done by Big Eva. Hate how their influence has become used for evil, but try to save those who have been played by Big Eva and pull them out. To use terminology from scripture, snatch them from the flames. Love our enemies even when we hate the very clothing stained by their evil. And by the way, righteous indignation and love are not contradictory. They are often both necessary for a proper use of the other. So that was this week's episode of Theana Money. As we go, I want to remind everyone that the law of the Lord is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. So go apply that law in light of the gospel of Christ's atoning death and resurrection to every area of life. Grace and peace, friends. Say